0: Corporate America Teaches Life. This is the Soapbox for the week of January 10th, 2021. For years, I have been railing against my, in this case, mostly conservative friends, who would sing the praises of big business while decrying the notion of big government. But when I would point out that the two walk lockstep with one another, which is inarguable, their favorite go to line was duh, well, if I have to choose, duh, I'd rather choose duh, big business, duh. Which is the point, Clem, there is no choice because there is no difference. There's no light between those two. A fact that has played out right before our very eyes over the past ten months. Big business has thrived during the pandemic and seen profits explode while more than 100,000 small businesses have closed forever with tens of thousands more about to. The few large corporations that were financially impacted received extraordinary bailout funds disguised as loans, which will be completely forgiven. While the paltry PPP program for small business was a pittance akin to feeding the peasants' gruel while the elites dined on Lobster Newberg. And yet, with that said, I would assert that in a perfect world, every American would work for corporate America for at least one year. I was recalling my time working for a broadcasting company recently, and I realized all of the life lessons that that experience gave me. Not merely related to success, finance, and business, but to interpersonal relationships, the art of communication and manipulation, the burden of knowledge, and most importantly, the unfairness of life. Not the unfairness of the big bad American capitalist system. The unfairness of life in all its forms. In my mid-twenties, I was a middle manager in a mega-million-dollar corporation with one direct boss in the building that I worked in that I reported to. And then he reported to his three bosses, who were scattered around the country, who all reported to the big boss... As the operations manager for our five Reno radio stations, I oversaw about 35 employees and everything that related to the stations being on the air, engineering, air talent, contests, and events, and the production and execution of all music and commercials. So in the industry, I oversaw what radio calls the programming department, and with that came the oversight of the programming budget, which, if you are an ambitious soul, sounds a lot more exciting than it really is. See, oversight didn't mean control. It really meant more like containment. And if I wanted one dollar more than what had been allocated to me, I had to crawl into my boss's office and beg for it. If he happened to agree, which he rarely did, he then had to do the same to his bosses, and so on up the chain all the way to the big guy. And more times than not, no matter how well I was doing my job, or my stations were performing, the answer was no. Right there in my boss's office. And the discussion was over. Thus... I slunk back to my much smaller office and started getting creative, adapting, and finding another way to achieve the goal I had set, because I had to. I mean, after all, if I knew before I walked into my boss's office that my idea would improve ratings and was then refused the funds to execute it, that didn't make the idea wrong. Plus, if I knew this idea was going to benefit the ratings, which is my job, and I didn't execute it somehow, and my department's performance suffered... I'd be the one to pay for it. Self-preservation is a hell of a motivator. By the way, there's already three or four life lessons in there. We'll recap when we get to the end. So as overlord of the programming budget, every October I was given a dollar figure, which I was to distribute over my departments and employees for the next 12 months beginning in January. I had no say over that dollar figure, and maddeningly, it wasn't tied at all to my department's performances. In fact, one year, after extraordinary ratings on all of our stations and flawless execution, my budget was cut. You see, while the stations had performed beyond impressively, the sales staff at the time had failed to convert those ratings into revenue. And since revenue is a fancy word for money, there was less to go around. And since it's the sales staff that actually brings in the revenue that department's budget couldn't be cut because they need now to go out and attract better salespeople. And it takes money to attract talented people. In fact, their budget increased. So my team and I had outperformed on every level. And now I had to make cuts in our departments. Meanwhile, the side of the building that massively underperformed was being handed more money to spend. Nothing fair about that at all. Making it worse was the burden on my shoulders now. Because if you haven't surmised yet, it was now solely my decision. Who would keep their jobs? And who would lose their jobs? On a team that, as a collective, was achieving all of its stated goals and more. Oh sure, in some Pollyannish world, I could just cut the whole team's salaries across the board, give them the, we're all in this together speech. Grow up. There's no motivation in that. Besides, what truly talented employee would stand for that? I wouldn't if I was on the other side of that. I would have immediately been begin looking elsewhere. Because <laughs> I can look around the room and go, wait a minute, I'm I'm doing a lot more than this guy over here is. And then that guy over there, they're the ones who would feel like, oh, good, well, I'll always be safe. And they would have no med- motivation to even bother to continue to perform at their current level. So in the end, I'd wind up losing the best employees, and I would have a whole staff of mediocre and worse. Good plan. Plus, as Jack Welsh, the brilliant former CEO of General Electric, always believed, no matter how large or talented any staff is, there's always the bottom 10%, the one out of ten minimum that isn't performing at the level of the other nine. No no socialism-style approach to solving this problem. So, here's how this plays out. Once I figure out how many positions I have to cut to make up for the shortfall in the budget and whose heads would be chopped off, I then also had to figure out how I was going to get the work done that they had been doing still without hiring people to replace them because the job goes on. And then there's also another issue. I've got existing employees that I already know are staying. They're not even being considered for these eliminations that I have to make. Oh, yeah, and they're due for salary increases. Oh, boy. So do I sit down with them and give them the life isn't fair speech, which is so motivating? Or I guess I have to terminate even more employees to open up the budget and allow for better compensation for the more important, more talented people who would be spared. And in case you're wondering, by the way, why I went right to firing people, there's a very simple answer to that. Labor costs businesses more than anything else. That's just a cold fact, which is what's led to the accelerated rush towards more and more automation around the world. Plus, in radio, you can barely cut the engineering budget ever. Cuts in contesting are crumbs compared to the cost of not only paying salaries, but also the insurance and the benefits for each person you employ. And so began the awesome responsibility of deciding single-handedly, the livelihoods of people that I worked with every single day. And in some cases, partied with every single weekend. For the next week as I made these decisions, I had the burden of knowing that at least one, if not three or five or more of the people that I was having drinks and laughing uproariously with was going to lose their job. And I was going to be the one who told them. And that whole sitcom idea of being the cool boss who tells his team on friday night hey guys let's tone it down tonight because there might be some changes coming soon that's not only unrealistic it's dreadfully unintelligent how unfair what an awful boss why should i instill anxiety and panic in the entire team when only a fraction of them are even being considered for the chopping block why instill just the anxiety of the changes why ruin everyone's good times This is the burden I chose when I accepted the position. One more fun part of the burden of knowledge, by the way, I had a week to make this decision. Remember it started in October? Then I had to submit my budget and wait for corporate to approve it. Then, once it was approved, I had to wait weeks before implementing it. Over the course of my time in middle management corporate America, I spent many holiday seasons knowing exactly which two or seven or 15 people wouldn't have a job come February. Good times. As for the actual, specific decision-making process of who stayed and who went, believe it or not, that's the easiest part of this story. Maybe it's because I grew up playing sports, which teaches you early on that star players get star treatment. The best performers I had, they weren't just safe from termination. They weren't even being considered they are in fact immediately in my mind some way somehow guaranteed not only raises but every form of accolade and perk i could throw upon them because a happy star is a star that wants to win for you and if he wins you win it's that simple and then the final step of this whole thing is the execution of it because believe it or not there's an art to workplace employment massacres and good managers do it this way in my experience you start with the weakest person on staff the one everyone knows is the weakest, and you terminate them first, obviously privately and with compassion. And We'll talk about all the intricacies of how you fire people another time. But you start with that person. This is all done in one day. From there, you work your way up one by one. And the reason for this is that as you do so, word quickly spreads that not just the weakest link has been let go, which everybody in the building knew could happen at any time, but oh, Oh, my, oh, Jim was fired? Nancy? Bill? And the rest of the team starts to get that feeling in their chest and in the pit of their stomach. Could I be next? What's going on? And then you go further, you start to do that. Oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And there's a reason for in this short time period creating that feeling. The final firing is the one that will be perceived as the most shocking to the team. Sort of that, oh my god, I can't believe they got rid of them. And then it's over. And since terminations aren't a five-minute idea with everything that goes into them, this process that I'm describing to you chews up an entire day. And it's not the worst thing in the world that the rest of your team has to go home and stew on the events of the day. One evening of anxiety on a work night is manageable and it's far from cruel. As for that inevitable employee who walks into your office on termination day and says, Um, uh, I see what's going on here. Uh, am I safe? Should I be worried? A simple response of something like, you know I can't talk about that. And if I tell you, then I have to keep telling everyone who walks in and asks. Should suffice. Although occasionally I would also add in, by the way, if I were you, I'd spend some time evaluating why you even think you're vulnerable to being fired which is sort of a a two-edged sword to give them to think about. On one hand, it's like, why do you think you're so worthless? On the other hand, are you not doing your job as well as you could? The final piece of the puzzle is the dust settling. The next day, there are no more terminations. In fact, now it's time for those annual review meetings in which people are told they're receiving raises and that they're truly valued. Now, the effect this has, if done correctly, is powerful beyond words. Because first of all, They've just seen over the last 24 hours with their own eyes that they matter. They also have all of their anxiety that they had to spend the previous evening with lifted, which sends those endorphins rushing, adding to the euphoria they feel when they realize they're going to be making more money. And all of that makes it very easy for them to absorb the news that they'll also be taking on more responsibilities to compensate for those no longer working with us. Job done. Sound cold, brutal, and harsh? It is. For all of us involved. It's one of the fewest and closest ways that humans experience what it's like to live in nature. One of the best ways to teach people about life is watch the National Geographic channel with them and ask simple questions like, So, which would you rather be, the lion or the zebra? All of this was to reinforce exactly that. This stint that I did in corporate America is an experience that's difficult to replicate almost anywhere else, certainly professional sports, the military, I'm sure a couple other places. But it taught me how to thrive across all parts of my life, well beyond professionally. In a scenario such as the one I just laid out for you, you learn about empathy, communication, compassion, human cruelty, and kindness. You also realize, if you allow yourself to do so, that the situation I was in is the one you'll experience throughout your life, over and over again. When a wife tells her husband that she's unexpectedly and unplannedly pregnant, well, that's akin to lighting the match of my story when I was told my revenue had been cut. It sets into motion a series of burdensome decisions that must be made, including financial and otherwise, that will have rippling and impactful consequences. The fact that too many people haven't learned what I learned early in life is the reason that so many of them crumble as humans and curl up into the fetal position at the first sign of adversity. Now, if you hate the tale that I have told here, there's a lesson there, too. Get out and start your own company. Sure, the burdens still exist, as do the harsh decisions and the human devastation, but at least you're 100% in control of all of it, and no one's telling you anything or holding you back. And of course, you can go the other way and say, well, no, I want no part of that and allow other people to have far more control over your life than you do, which is fine if that's what you're built for. By the way, there's a happy ending to this story. While the scenario that I laid out did play out more than once in my career, it didn't in the year that my revenue had been cut. Upon submitting my budget, ending the employment of five people, I also submitted a written appeal. I didn't argue in this appeal that it wasn't fair, but rather I pointed out all of the accomplishments of my team in the previous year and their extraordinary results. I acknowledged that, of course, radio is a business, and while revenues were down, there was quite literally nothing more that my departments could have done to alter that. I argued that perhaps the very people in the building who were excelling shouldn't be punished for doing so. They ultimately approved my budget as submitted, and they approved my appeal. The revenue had been reinstated to use at my discretion, which sent into motion a story for another time. Do I keep the five employees that I was going to fire? Or do I let them go and use the newfound revenue to more handsomely reward and incentivize those who were performing at the highest levels? (laughs) You can probably guess what I did. And that, ultimately, is the biggest lesson that I learned. Just like living, other than death, life never ends. Life. There is no, it'll all be better when, moment in life. In fact, solving one problem often creates others. Victories often quickly lead to challenges or defeats. And defeats and failures can lead to the most extraordinary moments of your life. If you learn from them. And never give up.